Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. On today's video, I will be going over my new seven types of rest and regulation workbook. If you have not purchased this yet, head over to my Etsy shop, get yourself this workbook so that we could fill it out together. All right, so the reason why I made this workbook on rest and regulation in particular is because we do not talk enough about rest and regulation as a society. I feel like we are going into the right direction in a sense where we have been talking about mental health a lot more within the past decade or so, but I feel like we're kind of merging into a time where we're understanding that our mental health is not just about talk therapy and it's not just about your mind. A lot of the times our mental health is also impacted by our bodies and as neurodivergent people we are so often dysregulated on a day-to-day -day basis. I know for me waking up in the morning I am pretty much immediately dysregulated from the start and consistently dysregulated throughout the day. And if we are not cognizant of all the ways that we are dysregulated, let alone actively trying to integrate ways to regulate ourselves again, this workbook is meant to help you get in tune with all the different ways that you are dysregulated and begin to figure out the ways that you could regulate those certain aspects of yourself that are becoming dysregulated. Every time I make a workbook, I put a lot of informational things in the beginning just to get you to familiarize yourself with the topics that were going to cover. I go over the reasons why we are dysregulated as neurodivergent people. And then I also go into the differences between rest and regulation as well, how you could begin to understand which one you may need. And I'm not going to go over that in today's video because the filling out portion of this video is actually pretty extensive and long. So I'm going to try to dedicate most of this video to that. If you want to go over that information, again, go to my Etsy shop and purchase the workbook. All right, you guys, do you have your workbooks pulled up? I feel like a teacher right now. Uh, don't think of me as a teacher, actually. Think of me as just a friend and we're filling this out together. Okay, so the seven types of rest and regulation are emotional, mental, sensory, physical, social, creative, and spiritual. I feel like usually we think of rest and regulation as a physical thing. For a lot of neurodivergent people who struggle with chronic burnout, you might just attribute your rest to napping a lot, sleeping a lot. The thing is, napping and sleeping can only help you rest so much. A lot of the times we are neglecting other types of rest, and because of that, we're not actually enriching ourselves and nourishing ourselves in all of the complex ways that we need to be. Let's just begin to figure out together all the different ways that we can begin to rest and regulate in all these different categories outside of just sleeping for hours and hours on end. Trust me, I have been there. I have basically napped my life away for many years, many months at a time. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. You definitely end up in a pit of depression during that time. All right, so the first type of rest and regulation we're going to talk about is the emotional aspect. I want to quickly highlight that every type of rest and regulation will be somewhat attributed to another category, especially physical. So for example, for a lot of us who struggle with alexithymia and dissociation, we may not understand our emotional state or our mental state very well, let alone our spiritual state, social state, all of that stuff. But a really great way to begin to connect to what you're going through is to just tune into how you're physically responding 
responding and how you physically feel. So a lot of the times the indicators that we will tune into before any others is that physical symptom. So getting a pit in your stomach, feeling a heavy weight on your chest. And then when you start to tune into that more, you might realize that it is an emotion that you're feeling. Those are just some things to keep in mind. I want you guys to think about Inside Out and how near the end of the movie, Riley has all of these different emotions that are mixing together and forming memories, right? It's kind of like that same type of concept in a sense where your emotional state will also affect your physical and mental state and your social state will affect your mental, emotional, and physical state, so on and so forth. So don't be surprised when you see a lot of overlapping happen. Emotional arrest requires the courage to be authentic. Give yourself the time and space to freely express your feelings rather than suppressing them. I kind of go over this topic in my previous video where I talk about how you should feel your feelings rather than intellectualizing them all the time. I'm not saying to not intellectualize your feelings because that part is very essential and grounding in many situations. What I'm more so saying is that there should be balance here. There should be moments where once you're in a safe space, you have to give yourself a chance to actually feel your emotions and move through them. In order to emotionally regulate, you want to first create space. What this means is you want to be in a safe space to emotionally regulate. This is extremely important because you can't just, you know, navigate your intense emotions in the middle of a classroom or at your job or in a hospital setting. Some cases we don't really get a choice because we're having a meltdown, but usually you do have somewhat of a choice. So for me, that space is in the comfort and safety of my own home when I'm by myself. That is a time where I could definitely delve in deep and connect to myself emotionally and move through all of the things that I'm feeling. The second thing is you want to notice what you feel. So sometimes this part is hard because of alexithymia. We may not be able to identify the emotion right away, but what you can identify is perhaps, you know, like I said, a physical type of sensation. So a pit in your stomach. The third step is to name what you feel. So as you dive into that pit in your stomach and you process everything that's coming up from that sensation rather than suppressing it or intellectualizing it, you can begin to get the information that you need. So if I'm getting a pit in my stomach and I really tune into it, a memory might come up and I might be able to identify after all of that that I might feel a sense of abandonment. Why is abandonment making me feel bad at this moment? It's because I fear abandonment, you know? So the emotions that I'm feeling is fear of abandonment. The fourth step is to radically accept your emotions. So... Sometimes I think we are so used to immediately jumping into positive thinking. I'm not abandoned right now. I'm okay. I am safe. You know, all of that stuff. I think, yes, that part is really important to arrive at, but I feel like what we miss is those crucial steps in between of just accepting the fact that you feel abandoned, you know, and it's that simple. There are times where you're not ready to feel okay yet. There are times where you're not ready to feel safe yet. There are times where you don't need to be positive or empathetic or try to make yourself feel good again. It's important to also allow yourself to just say, you know what, I don't feel good right now. I feel like crap. I feel abandoned. I feel all these feelings of fear within me at this moment. And just 
stop there. Let yourself be okay with that and say, I just don't feel good right now. And that's okay. I just got chills when I said that. I think it's important once you radically accept those emotions to follow that up with a sense of mindfulness. So being able to tune into your body and your environment again, whether that's looking out your window at the trees or sky, or whether that's paying attention to that little bug crawling across the wall. This is where you could kind of follow up with some affirmations to yourself. You know what? I am safe right now. I may not feel internally safe emotionally, but physically speaking, I am in my safe space. I am okay. So some things that we can do moving forward is to identify what our emotional triggers are, tune into the physical symptoms that come up in contingency with your emotional triggers and choose how you want to express and process your emotions. This is the part that we're gonna fill out together. All right, so I have my workbook pulled up in the GoodNotes app, but of course, if you are a physical person, you could always print these out yourself and fill it out by hand. Of course, when you're doing this on your own, I want you to be as thorough as you want to be. Um, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to say that one of my primary emotional triggers is when other people are angry, irritated, or frustrated. And this could be at me directly, or it could just be with themselves or in general. I do have CPTSD, so um, I do get pretty triggered over things that may be insignificant to other people. All right, so the physical manifestations once I am emotionally triggered in this specific way is that my heart will start racing, my body temperature rises, I start sweating, and I can begin to get extremely anxious and even panic. So this fight or flight kicks in and there's all this adrenaline running through my body. And sometimes this can even kick into brain fog because my only way to regulate myself in the moment is to just kind of dissociate and not think anything. And this will lead into me becoming nonverbal sometimes because I am just so dysregulated that there is no way for me to function effectively in that moment. So the way I want to express my emotions from here on out is gonna be different from situation to situation and from person to person. But for me, um, generally speaking, what I usually did was I would immediately try to intellectualize the situation. I imagine like that matrix um, green thing going on. And it's like, that's my way of trying to regulate myself is to just not feel any emotions, to only see the situation for what it is and get through that moment. In many ways, this is very empowering, right? Because I've been able to navigate a lot of very difficult situations with other people and with myself. But I definitely think that I overuse intellectualizing emotions to a point where in my interpersonal relationships with others, where the situation calls for emotions, I could seemingly lack empathy for the other person and for the situation because I am only trying to see the factors and reason, problem solve, all of that kind of stuff. This type of way of expressing your emotions and dealing with it can only take you so far because in certain moments, especially when it requires emotions, there doesn't have to be a rhyme or reason for it to be valid. The purpose of emotions is no matter what the other person is feeling, 
including yourself, that's just the emotion that's there. And there's nothing you could do to change it. There's nothing you could do to say whether or not it makes sense or how to solve it. Sometimes you just have to let it be, right? And so when you're coming at it with this problem-solving type of strategy, you're trying to solve something that doesn't need to be solved. It's not a problem, you know? It's just a state of being, an emotion. And so the way I try to express my emotions now is to just feel it. And usually what that means is I will just start crying. (laughs) Plain and simple, start crying. Whatever emotion I'm feeling, I'm crying. Sad, I'm crying. Frustrated, I'm crying. Triggered, I'm crying. Scared, I'm crying. Overwhelmed, I'm crying. Overstimulated, I am crying. Happy, I cry. Touched, I'm crying. Connected, I am crying. I know I'm being like a little bit humorous and sarcastic right now, but this is extremely real for me. And this is kind of my humor too, is just dark humor. When I am feeling any sort of emotion, my way of processing it is to just cry because I am just trying to feel my feelings, get that emotional information that I need and then process it afterwards. So I cry and then I process. Moving on, the next category is your mental state of rest and regulation. Schedule short breaks to occur throughout your day where you tune into your body, your environment, and an activity. These breaks can remind you to slow down your mind and be present. This part is extremely, extremely essential for neurodivergent people because we are very mentally active, extremely mentally active, because we have to almost break our minds up into several categories to think and process in different ways. We have our own unique way that we process that comes naturally to us. We have the way that we were taught to process things. It's like a culmination of other people's voices throughout our lives that is in this little category that's always saying things to us like that's not normal, that's not appropriate, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. So we have that part of our brains And then we also have other parts of our brains that are processing sensory input. We are processing emotional things. Because of this, it's important to give yourself a break from having to do all of that mental work. Again, it's about balance. It's not about thinking less. It's just about this is how our mind works. So we need to give our minds breaks every now and then throughout the day in order for it to function at the capacity that it needs to function. All right, so my mental triggers are social situations. Oh my God, my neighbor is walking so loud. It's like he's stomping. And how this manifests in me is again, I feel a tightness in my chest. I will start sweating. The way I like to process my thoughts when I am feeling mentally triggered is to try to go through everything in the situation as ones and O's. This is the interesting aspect, right? In the emotional sense, I encourage people to not intellectualize things. This is a moment where intellectualizing things is actually really helpful and taking your emotions out of it. So when I am mentally processing something that doesn't need to require emotions necessarily because it's actually holding me back rather than helping, I try not to think too much about the past. I try not to feel too much 
within the reflection. It's just the situation at hand. How do I need to respond to it? And following that up with a lot of affirmations as to the way I decide to handle things and process things is done at the best of my capacity. And that's all I could do. And if anything goes wrong, I just have to take the new circumstances and information at hand and figure out what my next steps are. All right, so the next category is sensory. This part is super important if you are a neurodivergent person because we have a lot of sensory sensitivities. Find pockets of time throughout your day to intentionally take breaks from electronics. Purposeful moments of sensory deprivation can begin to undo the damage inflicted by the overstimulating world. Sensory regulation. Identify which senses are overstimulated. Generally speaking, every neurodivergent person will have that primary one or two senses that is very sensitive. Apply sensory deprivation to that sense. I think the sensory deprivation aspect is essential because sometimes we might try to jump straight into sensory regulation, so stimming for example, but if you're already dealing with being overstimulated, it may not be helpful to go into stimming because it kind of continues that kind of frantic energy just into another modality, right? When you are dealing with sensory overstimulation, you kind of want to have a reset button and that's where the sensory deprivation comes in. Get yourself back to a baseline of just general sense of calm. And then from there, you could start to regulate yourself with stimming and things like that. And the third thing is to tap into your comfort stims, like I said. All right, so my sensory triggers are for sure my eyes and touch. I'm sensitive to other things as well, of course, but my primary sensitivities are eyes and touch. I think the sensory sensitivities for my eyes comes from the fact that I am working from home on computers for hours on end every single day. And I think a part of that is also because a lot of my sensory stimming comforts come from visual type of stims. And so I could very easily overwhelm myself through my visual senses. And so it's essential for me to give myself those breaks the touch comes from the fact that I have chronic pain all the time. My body is basically in eight out of 10 pain to 10 out of 10 pain every single day. So yes, I'm very sensitive to touch because of that. Manifestations of being overstimulated is that I will get irritable. For everyone's gonna look different, right? Irritable to me is just that I am a lot more quiet than I usually am. I'm already not very talkative and I think it's because I'm always a little bit irritated because I'm so overstimulated. I'm sure so many of you will understand how that feels. Because of that, my irritation isn't like this explosive, passive aggressive, verbal type of state of being, it's actually very quiet. The reason why I'm so quiet is because I know if I'm already irritated, if I were to respond or interact, it's probably not gonna come across very well because I might say some things that might be a little bit hurtful. You know, when you're irritated, you're less able to emotionally and mentally regulate as much and process in complex ways. And so I notice that when I am overstimulated and I'm irritable because of it, I tend to be a lot more cynical in my thoughts. Like I tend to be very poo-poo attitude, like everything has an issue with me in my mind. And I have learned over time to just keep it to myself because 
it's not nice or necessary for me to constantly be voicing every irritable thought that comes to me. I have been that person before, especially in high school, where when I was out with friends, every single thought that came to me, I would say out loud. And I remember one time my friend was like, when will you stop complaining? I empathize with both people, right? On one end, I'm frustrated with him that he misunderstands me. But on the other end, I hold myself accountable in a sense where for me to just be there complaining all the time is just not a great way to exist. I get nauseous and vertigo pretty often when I am very overstimulated. I'm not quite sure why this happens quite yet. This is something I have to talk about with my doctors but there's some sort of connection between visuals and how it affects my body and the way it feels within relation to my vestibular senses and whatnot. And so quite often, if I am in taking too many visual stimulation, I will also get extremely dizzy. Like the room will literally spin sometimes when I'm playing video games or something like that. And being physically overstimulated, I'll get extremely tense because that's my way of just muscling through physical pain is to just like constantly be tense all the time. How do I want to address being overstimulated? Having a transitional point where you could reset that includes sensory deprivation is essential. And when I say sensory deprivation, it doesn't have to mean like you're in a black void and not processing any sensory input. Sensory deprivation just means that that specific sense is not needing to process as much as it was. A really great reset transitional point for me is after work when I'm quite overstimulated before getting into the cheese part of my day kind of tapping back into my sandwich technique. Before I'm ready to relax and unwind, what I will do is I will go swimming or I will go on a long walk or go to work out and just get my body moving. Swimming specifically is a really great sensory deprivation reset for me because when you're underwater, you're not hearing anything. It's just a really great way to get back into your body and regulating yourself again. So the next part is physical rest and regulation. This part should be pretty easy because this is the one that is most commonly practiced and talked about. So passive physical rest includes sleeping and napping. While active physical rest means restorative activities such as body movement and massage therapy that help improve the body's circulation and strength. Think about your physical state and anything that has to do with the physical state. So sensory could be a part of physical. Think about this as a newborn baby. A newborn baby doesn't understand language yet. And so the way parents tend to comfort their newborns is to rock them, is to burp them, tap them, is to hold them and cuddle them. You never really see parents literally setting their newborn baby in front of them and just talking at them like, stop crying. You're okay. You're safe. There's no reason to cry. Your diaper's changed. Why are you crying? You know, that just doesn't make sense. You always see parents physically regulating their newborn child because that is the only language that they can understand, the physical language. The same thing goes for your physical body and your physical experience. So to physically regulate, you want to first identify where you feel the pain and then follow that up with identifying if it needs to rest or be expressed. So 
does the physical pain actually need a moment to relax and rest? Or is the physical pain you're feeling actually going to benefit from some sort of regulation? So going out and getting some sort of body movement in, for example. Because those two are very different and it's really important for you to know which one you need. Because if someone needs to physically regulate themselves and they're just laying there and not doing anything, they're still going to feel dysregulated and it's not going to help. right you can't just nap your way out of being dysregulated trust me i've tried multiple times it doesn't work my main pain points and this list is going to be long are my shoulders my neck shoulder blades my joints my chest my hips and my head I get pretty killer migraines, like really bad. So these are all of my pain points in my body. And how do I want to address all of this? I'm not gonna go into detail on all the ways I address my pain in my body. That is something I'm going to eventually get into as I talk more about my chronic pain on my channel. But generally speaking, for now, I'm going to say that I do isometric exercises. I go on easy walks. Having dogs helps me keep up with my walks. I go on swims. I utilize ice packs when I'm experiencing pretty bad migraines and also pretty bad joint pain. I also utilize CBD lotion and sometimes I will ask my partner to help massage certain parts of my body that are very tense and tight because of all the body pain that I'm experiencing. But as you can see, there's a good combination of movement in here because for me, where I'm at in life right now, I don't necessarily need a lot of rest. Like I don't really take naps anymore. I don't really just sleep all the time. That used to be my primary and only way of getting physical rest and regulating myself physically. But nowadays I have a pretty good list going of just some sort of like body movement or body regulation that can help manage all of my body pain points and I must say that it's really helpful because I'm not as exhausted as I used to be even though I technically am experiencing more intense chronic pain now than I did before. All right, so the next category is social. When we rest socially, we give ourselves time to recharge and maintain our emotional boundaries, which helps us avoid social burnout and stay connected with others. To experience more social rest, surround yourself with supportive people that you feel comfortable with and allow yourself to take breaks in between socializing to recenter yourself. People, it is so important for you to find social balance because it is not healthy for us to go back and forth between having absolutely no friends to overextending ourselves in our social lives to all these different types of people and situations in order to receive some sort of connection with others. We wanna be able to have a balance of both. Specifically autistic people, we say to ourselves, we're just introverts, I'm just a homebody, I don't need to see people, I, I'm okay being by myself. And yes, that is true in many instances, but as human beings, we are meant to have a sense of connection and community with other people in some sort of capacity. Maybe our community is not as vast and big as other neurotypical people, but we still need some sort of community, 
whether that's just five different people that you generally keep up with every now and then and see maybe once a year. That is still a sense of community that you have, right? Humans are social creatures. We're not meant to live on our own and do everything by ourselves. We need connection in some sort of capacity. If it's not to other people, do it with animals or nature or something. We have to be connecting. So to socially restore, I want you to first identify if socializing is reductive or an additive in that particular moment. Identify who you feel energized or depleted by. Identify which behaviors affect your energy and decide how you want to maintain or bring balance. So there's a lot of complexities in here, right? Because I could love a friend and feel extremely energized by them, but I could also feel extremely depleted by them for other reasons, whether that's like a sensory reason. So maybe I feel emotionally energized by them, but I feel overstimulated by them sensory-wise. So it's important for you to like go into the important loved ones in your lives and figure out the ways that they affect your energy and how you respond to them as a result. All right, so... Right now, if I were to socialize, it would be an additive. Factors that I kind of tune into to see if I am ready to socialize is to see how I am doing energetically and how many things I'm having to handle in my life and whether or not it's something that I'm scrambling to handle or if I have it pretty under control. So affected by... I am not going to fill this part out because... uh I don't need to call anyone out right now in my personal life, but this category, you're going to basically write the main people that you see, therefore affect you pretty profoundly in good or bad ways. Survival strategies. I don't want you guys to see the word survival and think that it's a negative thing. I want you to think of it in a very objective way. These are masks or ways of scripting that allows for a conducive social life with them and that doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing but it also doesn't mean that it's not depleting in some sort of way you know that's the nuance of this you have to go in and figure that out for yourself because let's say there's a certain person in my life that I have to be a lot more warm around and more bubbly yes that is very tiring for me but it also allows me to tap into my inner child in some senses that i may not be able to tap into on my own so some of my social stress so some of my so some of my so some of my so some of my main survival strategies so some of my main social survival strategies oh my god i had to say that literally like six times to get it down, is to be more warm and expressive. Another one is to be more calm and objective. This is something that I usually do within my sessions with clients or with family members. And then another aspect is to be humorous and outgoing. All right, so social accommodations that I try to apply. I'm not trying to say that this is the best strategy. I already said to you guys that I still struggle with my social life, so don't try to take this as advice. This is just what I do, okay? I'm trying to be honest here. The accommodations that I try to give myself in order to maintain my social life is to make sure that my life at that moment is pretty well maintained. So for me, what that means is my routine is good, my work is good, 
my relationship is doing good, my home life is doing good. The next thing is, am I understimulated and looking to connect with other people? For the most part, I am a very independent person. I don't need to constantly be connecting with other people. I could go months without seeing a friend or talking to a friend, but there are these moments every now and then where I am feeling very lonely and I want to go check in with a friend and connect with them. If that is something I am looking for, then yes, that is something I need there. Otherwise, if I'm not necessarily looking to connect, I don't force myself to go socialize because then I will just have to deal with being overstimulated and being stressed for no reason, for no benefit. When I go to socialize with friends, I want to go where we can talk because I don't necessarily like to be around someone in doing things or experiencing things necessarily. I, in particular, like to talk to people, catch up with each other and talk about concepts, things like that. And also go where there's food because that is a sensory comfort of mine. So if we're able to go somewhere where I have eaten before and I know what the environment is going to be, the menu, the people, the noise levels, all of that kind of stuff, it'll help me regulate a lot better and to be more present with my friend. I don't necessarily like to go experience new things with a friend that I haven't seen in a long time. That's just a lot. Not saying that I haven't done that before. It's just not something I prefer or work well with. All right, so the next category is creative. And this type of rest is especially important for anyone who must solve problems or brainstorm new ideas. Creative rest reawakens the awe and wonder inside each of us. Turn your workspace into a place of inspiration. You can't spend all of your creative work time staring at blank or jumbled surroundings and expect to feel inspired, much less come up with innovative ideas. Allow yourself to take a break from creating, to take in the beauty of your life and your surroundings. This aspect of our lives is so important as neurodivergent people because we are such creative individuals. We experience the world so differently. I feel like the most talented, unique artists in this world are all neurodivergent in some sort of capacity. I just know it. A lot of the times when neurodivergent people are dealing with chronic burnout and feelings of depression, I feel like it's because you're not accessing your sense of creativity in your life. And creativity doesn't always have to be making art, like drawing or painting or crocheting. Creativity could be cooking. Creativity could be writing. Creativity could be building your own space to elicit some sort of emotion. Creativity could be helping others to problem solve even. A lot of the reason why neurodivergence struggles so much with depression is because our systems don't support our need for creativity. The need to just do things a little bit different. Whatever creativity means to you, I want you to begin to tap back into that aspect of yourself, that zest for life, and actually allow yourself to do things the way that you feel inspired to do. So to creatively restore yourself, I want you to give yourself time and space to experience life. <laughs> this part sounds so obvious, but you would be surprised with how many people don't just allow themselves to experience life. You know, I feel like we're so often thinking about what's the next thing we have to do, what are goals that we have to maintain. We never really allow ourselves to just be in the present moment to experience life. So giving yourself time and space to just experience your life allows you to kind of 
get yourself back into first person point of view rather than third person point of view and just experience life from your body again experience life through your senses again yes one aspect of being neurodivergent is being overstimulated but another aspect of being a neurodivergent person is also having all of these very amazing enriching sensory experiences and the last thing is to tune into how you feel inspired so once you're allowing yourself to experience things again through your senses and through first person point of view really tune into how that inspires you intrinsically. So this is something that is kind of, yes, emotional and mental on the surface, but if you really think about it, is also very spiritual, you know? What does your soul feel inspired by? All right, so sensory joys. Man, this list is long. I'm gonna write coffee, because that is my everyday coffee that I make. I'm gonna say cool, crisp, mornings or weather in general the sound of rain the sound of nature eating good food traveling and learning about different cultures floating in the pool so these are some of my sensory joys that i could think about on the top of my head Next, I want you to think about new experiences that you would want to have. I think this part's extremely important specifically to autistic people because we sometimes may not go out of our way to go do new things and experience new things because we like to rely on our creature comforts and what we know um, we enjoy. And so new experiences could be very scary and unreliable, but it is essential for your sense of creativity, inspiration, and all of that good stuff. So new experiences that I haven't had that I would like to have is to go to Disney World, travel to different countries that I have never been to before. And honestly, it might be nice for me to experience group therapy in some sort of capacity at some point in my life, um, whether that's me somehow facilitating it in some sort of way or being a part of it in some sort of way. I think that'll be a really interesting experience that I would love to have. If not anytime soon, I would be more than happy to experience this in my 40s, you know, but that's something I could kind of tentatively say I've never experienced and would like to someday. And along those lines, eventually, I want to be a parent, be a mom, and I want to raise my kids in my own home, and I want to start an actual garden. Right now, I have a little garden in the patio of my apartment, but that's just not the same, you know, as having a full-blown garden that you're consistently harvesting from. How do these things inspire me? So Disney World inspires me in a way where it allows me to tap into my inner child, but also being in Disney World, Disneyland is also very positively stimulating. Traveling to different countries is inspiring because... You're learning about different cultures, you know, you're seeing different people, you're seeing different social interactions going on. In terms of being an autistic person, I like seeing that there's all these different people in the world and it makes you feel a lot more comforted by the fact that even though you're different than most that you grew up around and are surrounded by, that's okay because in other parts of the world, there are other people that are not like them either and that doesn't mean either are right or wrong it just means that people are different 
And that's the beauty of life, right? And I like to be reminded of those types of things. And so I'm going to kind of summarize the rest of the things that I wrote on my new experiences as it's just another way to continue to connect with others. All right, so we are nearing the end of this workbook and the last thing we're going to tackle is the spiritual aspect of rest and regulation. So this is your ability to connect beyond the physical and mental and feel a deep sense of belonging, love, acceptance, and purpose. To nourish your spirit, engage in something greater than yourself by tapping into your sense of purpose within your life and community. And I'm not talking about spirituality in terms of religion, right? This is not the same, not the same as religion. Spirituality is how your soul feels, how it interacts and what it needs to feel nourished and what it needs to express in this lifetime in your human experience. So everyone is going to have a different type of soul calling and everyone's going to have a different way to express their soul calling. And not everyone gets to figure out what their soul calling is, let alone tap into it in their lifetime. And that's very sad, right? This is something that we don't really prioritize and we're not really taught to tap into in our raisings in society. And so I think it's important for us to begin in our own personal time, understand what our needs are as spiritual beings. So to spiritually restore, you want to first give yourself the space to connect to your soul. So this part, I want you to think about in terms of a combination of integrating an emotional and creative connection with the physical. This is a great way to get yourself into connection with your soul. Then you want to tune into your sense of purpose. Your sense of purpose is kind of like what inspires you, right? We kind of talk about that in the creative category, like what inspires you. So hopefully after you guys fill that out, you will have a little bit more to work off of when you are tackling the spiritual category. So what inspires you? What gives you a sense of purpose? Are you a person that likes to connect to others? Are you someone that likes to help others? Are you someone that likes to make others happy? Are you someone that likes to create a safe space for others to navigate more difficult emotions or situations? Are you someone that likes to create a safe space for others to just feel comfortable? Are you someone that likes to help others deal with pain better? Whatever it is, Tune into your sense of purpose and then identify ways that you want to tap into your sense of purpose. So this part is a little bit difficult and I think it takes many, many years, if not a lifetime for people to figure out different ways to tap into their sense of purpose. Because I think when it comes to tapping into your sense of purpose, you get certain inspirations and inklings, but that may not be the way that you're meant to tap into that sense of purpose, for example. And the only way to really figure that out is to give it a try and see whether or not it sticks. I think this part takes some sort of dedication, but not stubbornness, right? So be dedicated and willing to try new things to tap into your sense of purpose, but don't be stubborn once you figure out that it may not be for you for whatever reason and be willing to pivot into a different direction, into a different way of expressing and tapping into a sense of purpose. So for example, in high school, when I knew a general sense of purpose that I wanted to tap into, but didn't know how I wanted to do it, I thought to myself that I wanted to be a psychologist. I thought to myself, I wanted to be all these different types of things 
you know, working with animals in some sort of way or helping people in therapy, whatever it was, I had all these desires. At one point, I even wanted to be a photographer or an artist. But when I started to go into these types of things, like going to psychology classes or going to a fine art school, I learned throughout time that it just wasn't for me in the way that I thought. And it took me navigating that on my own to figure out in more detail what are the ways I'm meant to tap into that sense of purpose. So you kind of have to be willing to learn from what life has to teach you in that sense. Like be willing to explore, but also learn at the same time. And I think that's a very complex way of existing to master. And the next thing is to bring awareness to the ways that you want to honor your sense of purpose. So what does it mean to honor your sense of purpose? Um, What that means is not only finding ways to tap into your sense of purpose, but it's also ways that you have to draw boundaries for yourself. For example, I tend to help other people in my personal life and in my work life, right? That is my sense of purpose that I love tapping into. But in order for me to honor this, I have to have certain boundaries for myself in specific moments. This is something I figured out over time and trial and error. And I have to keep that in place in order to continually honor it because In the past, when I didn't honor my boundaries, what happened was I was helping people all the time when they needed me and to the point of exhaustion and burnout. The result of that is I would hit these points where I would be completely unempathetic, non-emotional, non-reactive to other people because I was so emotionally and spiritually exhausted from helping others all the time and feeling their feelings. So figure out ways that you could draw boundaries so that you could continually tap into your sense of purpose and not exhaust yourself or overextend yourself too much. So I kind of wrote down that my sense of purpose is to help other people feel understood, less alone, take actionable growth, navigate difficult situations, embrace their own power, feel okay with being joyful. So ways that I can express my passion through my purpose is by sharing my experiences, sharing my knowledge, empathizing for other people, helping to problem solve, being there to listen, and being there to gently challenge others when they are looking for it. And so boundaries that I have to set for myself spiritually, this part is definitely going to be interesting because I don't think people understand what spiritual boundaries mean. And this is something I haven't even learned to integrate until, you know, three years ago. And I think my life before integrating these boundaries for many years made everything so difficult for me, um, spiritually speaking. It made my internal world very volatile and made my energy a lot more easily depleted and so integrating these boundaries helped bring a lot more balance into my life and stability empowered me to show up more effectively in tapping into my sense of purpose ways that i draw spiritual boundaries for myself is by not taking on other people's densities and projections there are times where people project a lot of negativity onto me whether they're aware of it or not i am at this point pretty well versed in being able to tell when this is happening when i know objectively speaking i'm not doing anything wrong for them to be saying or doing certain things towards me and so that's a good indication that there's something unresolved within them that they're making my problem so when this is happening 
whether in my relationships, friendships, online, through mean comments or with strangers, I, instead of taking it on and trying to figure it out, usually draw a very hard boundary of like, okay, I'm not gonna process this. I'm not gonna take it on. This is theirs and they're gonna keep it and I'm just gonna move on with my life. I'm not here to resolve their stuff. Like that is for them to figure it out. The next thing I do is I try to empathize in the moment, but allow myself to let go of the density after the fact. So when I am showing up in my sessions with clients, when I am connecting with friends or even my own family and partner, there are moments where I'm there to empathize and truly be there in the pits with them, in experiencing a certain type of density or emotion. In the past, I could have a hard time with that because I'm so burnt out from over-empathizing, overextending myself. There are a lot of people that I will identify that is not worth me empathizing for in this sort of capacity because it's just not conducive for either or and to a certain extent I'm enabling another person rather than actually allowing them to feel safe and grow so with people that I can identify that my empathy actually helps them grow as a person I allow myself to empathize with them in the moment but I let go of that after the fact I don't let myself ruminate on their energy or their density. I don't allow myself to feel it myself. I feel like I've become pretty good at identifying my own my own energy, my own densities versus other people's energy and densities. And I can pretty easily categorize them into different sectors and draw boundaries where it needs to be at certain moments. And that is very essential. Another thing is I do daily grounding practices. These are like mindful practices that is very much so physical that helps regulate yourself. And another thing I try to do is to connect to myself spiritually every week in some sort of capacity. So I usually do this through meditation and meditation is going to be different for everyone. And I have different meditation practices, just being able to tap into myself and connect to my soul and tune into what I'm going through, what cycle am I in? And what helps me do this as well outside of meditation is just listening to other people who are on that spiritually connected journey talk about spiritual concepts and energetic concepts. One person that I really love to listen to is a creator on YouTube called Sarah. I will leave her channel in the description box below. I found her channel only a few months ago, but I love her energy. I love the things she talks about. It's very not only grounding, but it gets me spiritually connected to myself. But yes, you guys, thank you for sticking in this long. I don't fault you for needing to break this video up into multiple parts, but take your time in filling this workbook out. And if you went and purchased this workbook, thank you for continually supporting me to do what I love to do on here. But other than that, thank you guys for watching today's video and I will see you guys on the next one. Take care of your yourselves. Bye.